Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland. And oh, baby, have we got a show for you tonight. We're going to take you on a journey tonight, folks. So settle in, get in your comfy chair, get the coffee going, the tea going, the juice going, or whatever. We're going to start out tonight on Lake Ontario. We're going to go through UFO sightings all along the lake bed. And also, we're going to move north to northern Ontario with none other than one of my favorite guys in the whole world, Michel Deschamps, is returning to Night Fright. Michel Deschamps, folks, uh, for those of you that are new to the show, is the Northern Ontario MUFON director, and MUFON stands for Mutual UFO Network. We're going to get into that some more. After we we finish with Northern Ontario, we're going to do an about-face and go right down to Roswell and discuss some revelations that have come through there in the form of top-secret documents that have been revealed. They're called Majestic 12. Maybe some of you know them as MJ-12. Lots to discuss tonight, folks. We're going to get to it right away. Strap in and hang on. Here we go. There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome. Night Fright, your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. Welcome, welcome, one and all. Welcome to Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland. Tonight, folks, UFOs. In particular, Michel Deschamps is here. He's the Northern Ontario MUFON Director, Mutual UFO Network Director. We're going to be talking about sightings along Lake Ontario, Southern Ontario, Canada, Northern Ontario. Then we're going to go to Roswell and look at some secret documents called MJ-12. Some of you may know them as Majestic 12, but first... I want to welcome back to Night Fright one of my favorite guys, Michel Deschamps, all the way from Sudbury, Ontario. How you doing, Michel? Not too bad, yourself. Very, very well. Um, Michel, do you have headphones, by the way? And speak. I've got some, but. Uh... Do you have a, a speaker mic like I do? No, I don't. Okay, so we'll just go this way. Um, folks, uh, we're doing this via Skype, so bear with us. Uh, there could be some technical difficulties as we go along. Michelle, let's jump in right away. How did you get involved with UFOs, and how did you become the UFO MUFON director for Northern Ontario? That's quite a, an achievement. Uh, well, my interest started way back after I was nine years old. Um, what happened was... Um, I had a sighting when I was nine, but it wasn't confirmed for years later. And uh, I started looking into the term flying saucer, actually at the time in 1978. Uh, well, my, my first sighting took place in 74. 
Um, a bunch of other things came out, like Project UFO, which aired on TV. And uh, it got me going where I decided to pick a topic and say, well, okay, let's choose something that's gonna, that I'm going to be researching profoundly as far as I can take it. And uh, that's how it started with UFOs. And how did you get involved with MUFON? I mean, that's an international community of uh, UFO network, as I said before at the outset. And it's got some stunning um, people involved with it, folks like Stanton Friedman and our, our very own uh, Dan Aykroyds. Yeah. Uh, well, that came, that ensued uh, quite a few years down the road where I investigated a landing case on Manitoulin Island near a small town by the name of Spring Bay. And I filed a report, uh, got, managed to get some pictures of the site. The landing site actually was still visible like three years later after the event. And as I turned in my report to uh, MUFON Ontario, uh, they turned to me and said, uh, how would you like to be a provincial section director for Sudbury? And I had never uh, had a position of director or much less any, anything else and I don't really have anybody working under me. But because nothing else was being done about UFOs in the area, I decided to take on the, the position. And Fair enough. Okay, so Manitoulin Island, folks, uh, as you remember, fans of this show will know that we did a show not too long ago that emanated... Um, primarily about a story called the Daniel Dodge Mystery, and if you're not familiar with that story, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on the archives. Perfect place for you to download that show. Uh, that was done on Manitoulin Island, and that is approximately an hour and a half west of Sudbury. So Sudbury is about three and a half hours north of Toronto, just to orientate you. And then if you go west another hour and a half, you'll run into Manitoulin Island. Now, Manitoulin Island has something very unique about it, and that's the fact that there is an Indian reserve, a native person's reserve, on the island. And, Michelle, let's talk about that a little bit, how the natives... I mean, these legends of sky people, UFO sightings on Manitoulin Island, they go back millennia. Um, can we talk a little bit about some of the sightings? Well, one particular sighting that somebody reported a few years back was a central object that was uh, being, uh, like, sort of um, circled, encircled by some smaller satellites and the lights would go in and out of the mothership if you if it, if it was a mothership and that was one particular sighting um sightings do go way back and i actually spoke to uh one of the band members and uh one of the young ladies there actually remembered her grandparents had had a sighting um sky people is in their folklore and uh they have no second thoughts when it comes to UFOs being real or coming here and making their presence known. Now, I understand that just on the weekend as well, uh, you were meeting with a, a First Nations person, and they had a sighting to tell you about as well. How did that go, Michelle? Now, that went pretty well. I actually have a previous sighting report of his uh, in audio, which is located on my website. You want to get uh, that website uh, URL? 
Yes, uh, it's www.newforce.com. It's N as in Norman, O-U-F-O-R-S. It stands for Northern Ontario UFO Research and Study. And although that's what it says, my website actually encompasses a lot of sightings that take place elsewhere other than Northern Ontario. Um, it's basically based on news clippings I found in the Sudbury Star, the Sioux Star, the Timmins Daily Press, Kirkland Lake Northern Daily News, and the North Bay Nugget. So these are documented cases then. I want to get to a lot of those in a, in a few seconds, but first I want to hear what happened on the weekend, just from a personal point, uh, because this is a new one for me. We haven't d- discussed this one before. What were the revelations he brought forth? Um, basically, the message he gave me was that the, the guy had gone through an awful lot of experiences in his life, um, personal experiences, and then when the UFO stuff came about, um, he had to do a complete 180 on some of these folks, and basically is open-minded to the fact that there's nothing malevolent, that they're here for a purpose, and that, uh... He basically said that love is the answer. Hmm. There's positive energies and negative energies, and the thing is, you have to focus on the positive energies. Michel, did he have actual contact with an extraterrestrial, or did he just have a, 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 a sighting? A sighting, yeah. Okay. A couple of sightings since uh, last Christmas, as a matter of fact. Now, uh, you know, we've known each other for about three years now, and in speaking with you uh, on and off the air, because we're friends, Native folks, uh, First Nations folks, uh, folks just right around the world uh, seem to have, they seem to be more in tune, don't they, uh, to things of this nature. And uh, I'm just wondering if there's a reason why that the UFOs, the extraterrestrials, gravitate towards the NATO folks. Maybe they're just more open than we are. Do you think that's something along those lines? Well, they're more in tune to the Earth, that's for sure. Um, if anybody, in my opinion, if any, if, if any particular people would have been picked to become stewards of the planet, I would have picked the native people because us white people did a pretty lousy job of being stewards of this planet. The way we pollute it, the way we destroyed things instead of building things. Native people are more in tune with the earth, more in tune with the energies, and uh, I have a feeling that may be part of the reason why they're, I mean, not necessarily they're being visited more often than white people are, but uh, certainly brings about uh, additional questions why they would have more sightings in and around the reservations. Yeah, for me also. I just want to tell folks, Michelle, who we're speaking with, and then I want to ask you about sightings in southern Ontario, in specific uh, Kingston, Cornwall, Toronto, Windsor, all along the south, and then we'll jump uh, back to the north, and then we'll head to Roswell, folks, where we're going to be discussing some new revelations that have come forth in uh, the form of top-secret documents that have been released called Majestic 12, MJ-12. And these documents are going to rock you to your core. These are secretly released documents that came out of 1954, I believe. And uh, they've just come to the surface uh, in this time period, and we're going to be looking at those. But first of all, I want to tell you who we're speaking with. We're speaking with Michel Deschamps tonight, folks. 
Michelle Deschamps, of course, is the Northern Ontario MUFON director. MUFON stands for Mutual UFO Network. Um, he has researched this for, geez, a better part of 22, 23 years, and I don't want to date him, Michelle, <laughs> at all. Um, all I'm trying to say is he's had the experience and he has the knowledge. MUFON folks, uh, Harold's, Harold's members like Dan Aykroyd, for example, Stanton Friedman, the father of Roswell, Don Ledger. Um, I hope to have Don on uh, very shortly, actually talking about our own Roswell, which was down in Shag Harbor, etc., etc. It is a well-known organization, and we are very well represented in the North by Michel Deschamps. I am going to stick his coordinates on the www.nightfrightshow website for you to click on and go to his website. Please do. He has a plethora of things there for you to look at, to listen to. Um, all things Canadian-wise, uh, you're going to see shots of landings, which I'm going to show right next to us in the Sudbury area. Just phenomenal. Uh, Sudbury has a super tower, as you know, for the, the mining up there. And the sightings around that, uh, they circle that thing like flies around a light in the summer. Let's go back to Michelle now, folks, and uh, let's pick up where we left off. And that's where I want to go right now, Michelle, is I'm looking over right now across Lake Ontario. I live in Kingston now, as you know. I moved from Sudbury. What are some of the sightings, some of the stories that have taken place along the northern shore of Lake Ontario, southern Ontario specifically? Is there anything in the Kingston area, by the way? Um... Actually, I just looked online earlier, and there was a sighting that was made in Kingston, or over Kingston. Uh, I don't know of the exact details to say, just quickly just a, a look-see look at, uh, at the report. But Lake Ontario is known for a lot of sightings of orbs. Um, I know that in, particularly in the, in the Toronto area, there's at least five, uh, I was told once there was five cases of abduction. Five cases of abduction in Toronto. Uh, one particular case, the uh, I don't know if it's still ongoing because this this goes back at least five, or well, even more than that, ten years that I've had those reports. Okay. And basically, one particular lady or person was being abducted every second week. Oh my God! So, so but, uh, there's a history there. Well, there's a whole history. Like even at nighttime, I've heard stories of of there being uh, extraterrestrial beings that have actually landed. In uh, in the park at night and walked around the city. Um, I've heard of another unusual report down in the subways, where these bluish uh, bluish creatures wearing uh, parkas had been seen by uh, two ladies. I think their father was uh, higher up at Inco, actually, as a matter of fact. And I heard the story third hand uh, years ago. Um, any idea why they would go to Toronto? Now, I could make a joke here and say the film festival or something like that, but in all honesty, uh, uh, observation, do you think? Uh, well, films? yeah. Unlike, unlike, uh, unlike Star Trek, which is fictional, um, the away teams you know, would normally dress themselves up like the, the people on the planet that they're visiting. But these creatures here, they don't seem to uh, to care whether or not we see them the, as they are, because they've been seen walking around, leaving footprints, um, and it's astonishing to hear the reports, and in some cases, even unbelievable. Have and there ever been reports, Michelle, of violence against abductees? Uh, 
not per se here in Canada. There's been some cases in Brazil where the UFOs themselves seem to be um, attacking the people that they're approaching using beams of light. But uh, to say in Canada, I don't think I've ever heard of any cases where um, something would end up in, in death, let's say, or post-traumatic well, post stress disorder is one of the uh, symptoms that people sometimes suffer if they haven't been prepared to this phenomenon. And that's the whole basis of my website is to prepare people to this stuff because if it were to happen to them and they are totally unprepared, well then you're more likely to either have a heart attack or something unless you're you're forewarned of what could happen, you know. But I'm not like for myself. I, I've I've been I've been accused of being an abductee because I've had so many sightings. But I don't live day by day by day by day looking over my shoulder. I've never been uh, that afraid. But no, I have. I can't say that I've heard of any cases where people have uh, gotten hurt. And folks, we're speaking with Michel Deschamps. He's the Northern Ontario MUFON director. We're talking about Canadian UFO sightings, in particular right now, sightings that have taken place uh, along the northern shore of Lake Ontario, all the way from one border to the other. We're talking about sightings that have taken place in northern Ontario as well. And we're going to be talking about Roswell, of course, very shortly, and some documents that have come to light, top secretly released documents called Majestic 12. And these were sneak out of the government, the U.S. government, and it seems that the U.S. government has known about this alien phenomena since 1947, the Roswell crash. We're going to be getting to that. If you're just joining us, folks, there's lots of time left, lots and lots of time. Settle in, relax. Um, this show, folks, is centered around a website called www.nightfrightshow.com. You'll see it running across here. The idea behind the show is to give a voice to those uh, that are doing research in paranormal, doing research in conspiracies, uh, a Canadian voice. Very important. This is the only show that gives a voice to Canadians en masse, and I say that with all pride, and it has turned out to be the number one Canadian-based show of its genre, and that is done it's a volunteer show. If you want to make a donation, folks, well, tell me it wouldn't be appreciated. Uh, it'll help pay for lights. It'll help pay for headphones, computers, cameras. Oh, there's so much stuff. Uh, it all comes out of my own pocket, and I could really use some financial help just to buy software, for example. We're trying to get some speakers. I, sh I say we, but it's really me. I'm trying to get some speakers to do a proper audio editing. Right now, I'm editing on $10 little junkie speakers so uh it is a plea for some funding uh, donations you can make a donation right on the www.nightfrightshow.com website now as i said before this is to give a voice to canadian paranormal researchers a voice that uh somehow our national broadcaster has omitted um and uh, I think to great dismay because uh, there are a whole plethora of researchers out there, filmmakers of the paranormal genre. There are a whole plethora of folks that uh, are doing great, great work uh, in terms of writing books, etc. They do not have a voice. And that's what this show is about, is to give them a voice right across the country. It is also a radio show. It is broadcast through 80 stations right across the country, but 
through the university network. So there you have it. There's a big brief <laughs> overview of Night Fright and what its purpose is. I want to go back to Michelle Deschamps. I want to go back specifically, Michelle, um, to a possible crash landing. I think it was you had mentioned once before in the Paris Sound District. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, very little, actually. It was in the Owen Sound uh, Owen area. Owen Sound. In 1954, uh, the, only, the only reference made to any potential uh, UFO crash in northern Ontario. Landings? Many landings. Uh, was what was actually, the most recent landing, Michel? Uh, I would say Manitoulin. Before that, there was uh, there was a landing behind Hanmer High School, which is where I attended high school. Uh, yeah, Hanmer actually, north of Sudbury. There was another landing at the corner um, where now there's homes that are built. That's again in Hanmer. Um, but there's been some really weird things actually in Elliott Lake, for instance, um, a few winters ago somebody would snowshoe to a lake and they'd come across this uh, 25 diameter cookie cut thing right in the snow that would go down three to four feet in the snow and right down to the grass and it's like it's like a hot kettle would just sit down there and the same same thing i'd heard a similar story about anger area where somebody was snowshoeing and uh, they came across this circle right in the snow and the walls were all straight on, we're talking about a large circle, like somebody had used a, a, a large mold, to a cookie mold or whatever, to just right down to the grass. And it was just standing there on the edge of the, of the sheer walls of this thing. And it's like, what the hell would cause, you know, a perfect circle in the snow, four feet down, right down to the grass? No explanation. Do you think there's a reason why, Michelle, they haven't made direct contact with, uh, I do believe that they have made contact with the powers that be. Perhaps, you know, like I said before, we're going to be discussing Majestic 12, the American government. Do you think there's a reason why they haven't made direct contact with the mass public? Do you think there's a reason why they're waiting for something? Uh, maybe they think there's no intelligence down here. <laughs> maybe they're right. <laughs> because, uh... Uh, as it was told to me more recently, uh, I was listening to a segment off of a UFO Congress uh, conference, and somebody said, um, "If there's any skeptics, if they if they are not open to the idea of UFOs being real at this point, you might as well just go home, because the the the, the evidence is overwhelming that we're being visited, and never mind uh, the uh, the newspaper accounts and the uh, anecdotal accounts." When you look at the physical evidence and uh, and what's been collected, uh, it, maybe it, it, the dissemination hasn't been done properly, which is why a lot of people are still skeptical. Just like if the information is sat upon and not shared, um, that's one of the reasons why, um, per se, I don't do my presentations under the auspices of MUFON because a lot of times, when I well, one particular time, I've sent my report in. And it just sat there, and it never was never was used for education. I go into schools and I speak into schools and university. Well, at least Laurentian is paying me now once a year to go there, at the Bible uh, the Bible studies uh, building, and so I do my part. But I haven't really heard of anything about 
MUFON going around using the information. They, they want to solve the mysteries for themselves, and that's not fair. Michelle, let me give you a plug right now. Let's plug yourself, because I was going to bring the fact up that you do go around and give seminars, and uh, you are available to folks that are listening right now, right across the country, either on radio or on television. Tell us a little bit, by the way, folks, it's Michel Deschamps. He's the Northern Ontario MUFON director. He has a wonderful presentation that he goes around to educational institutes or anybody that wants it. Uh, he's even done private parties to talk about UFO sightings in and around Northern Ontario. Can you tell us a little bit more how people can get in contact with you, for example, and the content, the certain things that you do talk about in your presentation? Um, well, they can go to my website, which is... Uh, we mentioned it before, www.newforce.com. And New Forest simply stands for Northern Ontario UFO Research and Study. So you go there, and anything that's in blue is a link, and that includes my name. Um, my full address is there, too, and my phone number. Um, and it's, it's already worked. It's worked many times. I've just received, in the last couple of days, a sighting from Dowling through somebody's iPod. They text me a, a sighting report of a greenish light that shot straight up from behind the trees. Um, I get lots of reports like that. I have audio clips. My website contains the highest number of um, UFO-related beings that have been spotted throughout the world, which has never been found on any other website. I also list... Uh, just a, a sampling of the crop circles going from the basic circles to the more complex patterns just to sh give an idea of what has happened. And all these things, Michelle, are included in your presentations when you go around? Um, well, so far the presentation, basically I focus more on physical evidence. I have a little oh, clip okay. I took off of um, a documentary where it shows um, soil that's been affected by a, by a UFO landing um, and the soil doesn't absorb water whatsoever. Really? And it floats on top of the, they place the soil, the UFO affected soil in a platter with water and it floats. Water does not go in, doesn't absorb water whatsoever. Then they took a regular sample that was not part of the actual landing pattern and the soil goes right into the water and turns into dirt and like into mud. So it's like there's physical evidence right there. Also, they show how seed germination will take place in soil that's normal, but won't take place in soil that, that's part of the, the landing ring or whatever landing site has been found. And it's, it's, it's recur, recurred over time, time and time again, like Manitoulin Island had a sighting, uh, a landing way back in the 70s that was inv uh, investigated by the OPP. And the ring that was maybe five to six inches thick, but 20 feet in diameter, lasted for 15 years where nothing grew there. And so you're talking about phys physical effects that are not reproducible in the lab. They can't be readily explained by, you know, some guy going in there with a dirt bike several times over. Like the landing that I investigated looked like two donuts, where it's not, well, two donut shapes indentations, but what it was, in fact, it was three quarter inch gravel layer on top of limestone, but the two areas where the UFO was landed, there was two objects, later found out, uh, the gravel was blown away, leaving these two depressions or indentations looking like donuts. And I've had people come to me and say, somebody in, with a quad or, or 
or a trike would do like circles or a snow machine and, and it didn't make any sense because the odd thing was when it was fairly fresh see the that landing took place in the fall of 1990 i only got there in 1991 in june and you needed a scraper to scrape the, the the gravel and the sand right off the limestone something was holding it together i didn't take any samples but i couldn't visibly see any glue any residue that would hold the sand together along with the gravel and the funny thing is because I get the news clipping where I used to get the news clipping service from Arkansas, 11 years later, in a place called Denver, North Carolina, the same freaking pattern was found on a very, very frequently traveled road that led to a manufacturing plant. And so I used that part of my presentation to show that the, the similarities with landing patterns, landing sites, landing gear marks are so close and so common that it gets boring after a while. It's the same thing as having several UFO sightings. After a while, you get tired of it. I've had 27 sightings. I haven't looked at the sky since because why? Because I'm already convinced they're there and I'm leaving it up to the skeptics to have their own sightings. So, Michelle, you've seen these templates over and over and over again. What's your analysis? Any uh, speculation as to why they would gravitate towards those areas? Uh, well, Seclusion is what uh, uh, comes to my mind because somebody had once claimed that the, the landing case that I investigated on Manitoba must have been a hoax. But the funny thing is, it was located a quarter mile into the woods, out of sight from the main road, and you would have had to be in the property, behind the trees, in this clearing in order to see it. If you're going to create a hoax like that, you would have played it, placed it in plain sight where everybody was going to see it. But yeah, this that's was, what I would think. They, and it was on somebody's property that they would check once a week, and that's how they came across the two donut-shaped indentations. So, hoaxing, by the way, I have to mention, hoaxing is is very small. Less than 1% of the cases is hoaxing. People think it's it's more prevalent than that, but it, it's not. And uh, that's there's a lot of things about that that has to be clarified, whether, like, how much is hoaxing, how much is psychological, how much is astronomical. I mean... Uh, when Blue Book, when Project Blue Book did the study of 3,100 sightings, um, and before it closed down, or when it closed down, there was an accompanying letter that basically said, well, only 3% of the sightings were unexplained, were unknowns, like real unknowns. Only 3%. That's what they said in the letter that accompanied Project Blue Book at its closure. Now, when, because they didn't expect anybody to actually look at Project Blue Book and do a research. Well, Stan Freeman did a research on that, and it turns out that the unknowns turned out to be 23.5%, which is a lot more significant than 3%, because 3% is easy to brush underneath the rug, you know? When you're dealing with 23.5% of all sightings being totally unknown, that's amazing. Now, they said, well, how, do you, how, are, you, how are you sure? How are you sure that these are unknowns? Could they just not be cases where there's insufficient, insufficient information? He said, well, he says, if you look at the pie chart, there's actually a category, a separate category, where it was insufficient information. And because they had insufficient information, they could not classify those as unknowns. The unknowns were thoroughly investigated, and it turned out to be 23.5% unknowns. And I still will state to this day that most of the sightings, if we were to gather all the sightings together, that I'm willing to bet 101 that still, to this day, 23.5% or more of the sightings are real unknowns. Wow. 
often that's how often they come down here that's how often the sightings occur whether it's in canada uruguay venezuela israel or, or even australia i mean there's a sighting that takes place every day for each day of the year somewhere in the world and that's a known fact it's a known fact if you're willing to look at it and i think that a lot of researchers especially maybe the ones who have never had a sighting that are not going to look in that direction to say well yeah sightings are occurring on a daily basis so. you know michelle um that's a perfect segue, by the way, by mentioning Stan Freet. And by the way, folks, we're speaking with Michelle Deschamps tonight. Just joining us, plenty of time left. Settle in, get comfy, get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a cup of juice going, or whatever your pleasure. Just settle in, relax, put your feet up in your most comfy chair. This is a show called Night Fright, folks. I'm your host, Brent Holland. Our guest tonight, Michelle Deschamps, is the Northern Ontario MUFON director. MUFON stands for Mutual Mutual Mutual. Pardon me. Mutual UFO Network, and uh, it boasts such folks like uh, Stanton Friedman, who we mentioned before, who's a Canadian and the father of Roswell, and uh, folks like Dan Aykroyd, for example, is a member of MUFON. Uh, this show, folks, is a Canadian show. It gives voice to Canadians that are marginalized right across our country and i'm very proud of the fact that this is the number one canadian based show of its genre uh the folks that come on this show generally will not get an audience on any other network on any other show in canada than night fright and i'm very very proud of that um fact because there are a lot of authors great authors out there uh writing paranormal books for example ghost story books etc etc from right across the country uh there's filmmakers that don't get a voice because they've made a paranormal film there's researchers like michelle deschamps that won't get a voice on any mainstream television especially our national broadcaster and I'm very proud of the fact that that's what this show's doing. It's giving voice to the voiceless, as they say. www.nightfrightshow.com. The most important thing there, folks, are the shows, the archives. And they're all free. Free as long as I can maintain the website out of my own pocket. If you want to make a donation, I would very much appreciate it because there's the cost of the website, editing software, which is... Speakers, like I said before, we need speakers desperately. Cameras, lights, uh, there's so much paraphernalia involved now with this show, more than just radio, uh, to say nothing of the time. If you want to make a donation, www.nightfrightshow.com. I want to go back to Michelle. Michelle, you made a wonderful segue by mentioning Stan Friedman. Now, Stanton Friedman, folks, is a Canadian. He uh, lives in uh, the Maritimes, specifically New Brunswick. They even have a Stanton Friedman Day where he lives. He's the father of Roswell. He brought it all to light. Uh, he's been researching it for, gee whiz, must be 40, 50 years at this point. He's a physicist. His credentials are impeccable. He's a nuclear physicist, as a matter of fact. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because we're going to go to Roswell right now, and Michelle had just mentioned some papers called Project Blue Book, which was a research project set forth by the United States. Once again, I'm going to talk about the government of the United States and something called MJ-12, which is uh, Majestic 12. These are top secret documents that were leaked to Stanton Friedman and others discussing the fact that the 
the American government knew about the 1947 Roswell crash. We're going to get Michelle to discuss the history of these and its content right now. Michelle, can we go to MJ-12? This stuff is electrifying. Absolutely electrifying. I'm getting goosebumps as we talk about it because this is disclosure. Yeah. <clears throat> well, MJ-12 was originally put together by President Harry Truman. And it consisted of uh, six military people and six civilians. So two Army, two Navy, and two Air Force, and then uh, six civilians, which included, oddly enough, uh, an, uh, an astronomer by the name of uh, Donald H. Menzel. And uh, as, uh, as Stan says, um, when he did the research on this, he was astonished that he was surprised, first of all, that Donald H. Menzel was involved because he was a skeptic. That's right. But uh, Good cover, isn't it? Pretending you're a, it's a good cover, pretending you're a skeptic, and then you're not. He also had learned, Donald H. Menzel, uh, being an astronomer, for some reason, he had also learned Japanese, which is a symbolic language, and uh, basically used his talents to try to decipher some of the alien writing. And a lot of people don't know about that, because Donald H. Menzel, to a lot of people, he's regarded as being one of the top astronomers of all time. Um, I think he died in 1986. And uh, well, what people don't know is that he led a double life. Uh, he had the longest association with uh, with JFK and, um, and some other things, too. I'm not the expert on this, but Stan Friedman's uh, publication, the last final report on Majestic 12, lists everything that he was able to find out about Donald H. Menzel. And it was amazing that he realized that it made sense that this guy would be part of the MJ-12 at the time because he was able to uh, write fictional stories too and was able to debunk, like in the public's eye, debunk UFOs. And so he, they, it was necessary for him to be part of that group. But the astronomer could also do the research secretly behind the behind curtains. What does the report contain that is so explosive that the government is trying to deny that it is a false document? Uh, the government's trying to deny, deny even its very existence. What's so explosive in that report, Michelle? Well, in that report, it talks about the kinds of craft that were seen or found and uh, the occupants. And uh, the fact that the occupants are pretty close in similarities to us, like one head, two arms, two legs, and a body. A lot of scientists, especially by you know scientists dealing with biology, assume automatically that somehow creatures evolving on another planet must take on a very exotic shape and not look anything like us. But I think it's a universal joke on us that somehow the humanoid form is perhaps the highest standing or the best the best choice for for uh, for an intelligent creature because the way I see it if you were a creature that was like let's say like a slug and you're crawling across the ground and you're behind a rock some predator comes along can pounce on you because you can't see them coming but then, if you're an upright creature, and all your sensory organs are all at the highest point, and you can see from far away, you've got legs to run, you've got arms to help you climb trees. If you see a predator, you can run and you can climb and get away. And that's survival right there. 
that determines whether or not you can survive a predator attack or if you were like some slug crawling around around the ground or whatever easily being picked off by whatever predator is there so i think the humanoid form is more prevalent throughout the galaxy than people would tend to give it credence to and uh i think it's maybe a universal joke but at the same time when you look at it seriously you, you start to think it makes sense that there would be more humanoid forms out there in one way shape or form you know that there, there's a lot of similarities a lot of just differences like some of them may not have fingerprints some of them may have slanted eyes like uh like um, asians they're all like asians or they have vertical slits like a cat's eye too that's been reported so you're you're telling me that there's more than one species of aliens now with those many different species of aliens are there predators involved you know i think of the movie uh, aliens that certainly was a predator the movie predator there's an alien that was definitely a predator yeah well i i for some reason this is what's so funny about these creatures they somehow have divvied up the planet amongst themselves in 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 uh in Norway in Europe you find the uh, the more nordic looking type people whether performing the abductions or being seen in America you've got the little grays or sometimes the tall grays you've got them that they go between 3.5 feet tall to over 5 6 feet tall in South America you've got the reptilians yeah you got other creatures too i mean they're, they're, see i i bet to divide the creatures into two groups the ones were there were only a one time sighting where a, a, a ship has landed see of all the cases of landings of ufo's 23% of those cases involve small occupants next to the ship sometimes leaving footprints uh so i've categorized all the 85 actually it's 85 or 86 because it actually contains the only photograph taken ever of a humanoid being and that was by a police officer down in alabama in 1973 then the abduction performing aliens are set on a separate page because they're more recurring those cases of abductions are more recurring the sightings of the other beings if you look at all the 85 86 sketches that i have these were creatures most of the time were only seen once and never seen again but yet you look at some of the sketches and there's some similarities between some of them but the abduction performing aliens the typical grays the praying mantis type they are seen more often because they come back repeatedly for some reason you know it's much more than just medical but i think maybe they're keeping tabs on us maybe they had some part in our creation and they're just keeping an eye to see what we're going to do next it's like i've always said as soon as the first atomic bombs went off it started having a whole slew of sightings and i think it's the aliens basically saying oh look the kids have found the matches let's go check to see what they're doing Yeah, I think that's a very good analogy and one I would like to show up as well. Um right here on earth, you know, we just had the giant tsunami in Japan and God bless them all. There was some radioactivity leaked from those four nuclear plants. Well, that radioactivity, folks, is being um registered in the western part of the United States. So whatever affects our world, for example, and I I'm going to do this on a mac a micro level first and then a macro level. it will actually go forward uh, and affect whatever we do on this planet will affect 
the giant universe, and that's something I want to get across. So that's probably what attracted them. I think Michelle hit the nail on the head. The kids have found the matches because we certainly don't have the aptitude to deal with nuclear weapons. I mean, we're still shooting each other, and um, it, it's absolutely absurd. I mean, people are, are dying in Afghanistan because they want to send little girls to school. Yeah. Um, let's go now. Now we're on the subject of MJ-12 right now, folks, with Michel Deschamps. He is the Northern Ontario MUFON director. If you're just joining us, we have been discussing various sightings along Northern Ontario and along Lake Ontario, the southern part of Ontario. You can get this show along with any other show that we've done so far at www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on the archives. All the shows are there for you to download for free. Also there, just click on our guest picture tonight. That'll take you right to his website, and there's a plethora of things Michelle has researched right there in northern Ontario and southern Ontario. These are real Canadian sightings, folks, a real Canadian show tonight. Michelle, let's go back Back to MJ-12. Now, these are documents, folks, that were presented to Harry Truman. What else is in this uh, in these sets of documents? These are top secret documents that have been released, and um, uh, it just makes me wonder how many other presidents are aware of what's going on in these documents. And something that was alarming to me that we've discussed before. The President of the United States doesn't have the highest top secret clearance. That's alarming. Um, but pertaining to that document you just held, uh, you just held up there, the original MD-12 documents were about eight pages long, and it included a memo. Uh, it included one memo, but it didn't have any of the attachments that is mentioned. Now, those documents that you held up there, that's actually. I, I actually reproduced that from a small booklet that I purchased, and the SOM, the Special Operations Manual, was actually part of the manual that that all members of MJ-12 or people investigating crash retrievals actually had to have with them because it listed everything that he needed to know uh, to dispose of the bodies, to dispose of the UFO parts, and what to do with them and where to ship them. And if you look on page 10, Actually, some of the parts, I think it's page 10 or page 17, some of the parts were actually shipped to Area 51, Area S4. And that's where Bob Lazar worked. Let's go there, Bob Lazar. Because Bob Lazar has been shot down by a few people, and unfortunately includes, includes Stan Friedman. But I just recently saw a segment off the UFO International UFO Congress where somebody else, a Dr. Birch, actually worked there and pretty well confirms everything that Bob Lazar had said about there being nine objects stored in hangars and one of the objects is the Oswald Craft which was under a tarp the one was the sports the sports model as they call it which was the one that Bob Lazar talked about and then there's some other vehicles there that were recovered at different crash sites like including Kingman, Arizona in 1955, 54, something like that 53 I think it was and so, Area S4 is located 15 miles south west of Groom Lake, which is why I guess a lot of people have this misconception that the UFOs are actually stored at Area 51 when they're actually stored at Area S4. And this, this place has five levels that go below ground. And they explained all this in this segment that I just watched. So it confirms to me, I, I believe Bob Lazar, he's never changed his story, just like Travis Walton never changed his story about his abduction case. 
never wavered, never lied about anything else. So it's like, yeah. Um, you know, Michelle, you mentioned Papoose Lake. Um, uh, just outside of Area 51 where the crafts are stored. Uh, fans of this show will know that I had the uh, Canadian Defence Minister on, he's retired now, Paul Hellyer, and he was saying that he believes that the aircraft, the Arrow, there was one left, and that's being stored also at Papoose Lake. So there's another revelation for us uh, to deal with. Yeah. yeah. So the Area 51, they also have MiG-29s. They have, you know, that's where they would test all these other jets to, to, to see what they can do to bring them down or whatever. It's it's some maybe an extension in a way of the Foreign Technology Division, which was at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, or probably still is. And Wright Patterson Air Force Base, in fact, also had some UFO parts cataloged uh, archived there, because. Um, God, I wish I would have had a VCR. I think I mentioned this to you once before where Dateline NBC was doing a report on computer hackers. And they had this computer hacker on his computer. And the camera, the, the television crew and their camera was aiming at the computer screen. And this kid, well, it didn't really show his face. I don't know. It could have been a, a kid or a young man. Actually punched up a few things. And next thing you know, you could see right past an Air Force base there, and it, it had UFO part cataloged in the millions. And and if I would have had the VCR, it would have proved right there that they have UFO parts completely cataloged and listed in archive at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, and that's where uh, that's where Attic was located. That's the uh, um, Air Technical Intelligence Command. Something like that. I, I may I may get the words wrong, but that's those were the people that actually from Project Blue Book that were first investigating UFOs uh, it, it, back in the 50s and 60s. That's where Project Blue Book originated from. It was Attic at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Now, Michel, by the way, folks, we're speaking with Michel Deschamps tonight. He is the Northern Ontario MUFON Director, Mutual UFO Network. Uh, Dan Aykroyd's a member, for example, uh, Stanton Friedman, who we've been talking about back and forth. He's the father of Roswell. Now, you can get all his information, by the way, folks, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on his picture associated with tonight's guest. You can even get this show if you're just joining us now and listen to it in its entirety. We talk about sightings right across Lake Ontario, southern Ontario, northern Ontario. Now we're dealing with Roswell um, and something called Majestic 12. These are top-secret papers that were released to Harry Truman. Now... Uh, Michelle, when we talk about these bodies, uh, the rumor has it that there were bodies found at Roswell, uh, some were in various states of dying, some were alive. Do you, you're just pure speculation, your own opinion, that's all I'm after right now, um, doesn't, you know, I just want your opinion, your speculation, your analysis. Do you think these alien beings are still living at Area 51, if there's any that have survived, or do you think they've all passed on? Um, I'm not so sure, because uh, in some of the races, their lifespan can go as much as 350 to 400 Earth years. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. one of the things that, one of the details that I, I managed to, to get. They had a special back in 1988 called UFO Cover-Up Live and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, on my website, I have some blueprints. Well, they look like blueprints of an autopsy that was performed at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. And it basically says that these creatures, well, some of them, not all of them, uh, their lifespan is between 350 to 400 Earth years. 
So they, you know, they are obviously able to travel in space a lot longer than we are. And uh, but then that's that's a whole other thing. We've talked about that before. I don't think they travel back and forth to their planet. They have bases all over, including the the, the backside of the moon. You know, which makes sense to me. I mean, if you're going to keep a close look on your neighbors, who seem to be the more violent type in the universe, and that's us, because we we you know we're we're dealing with tribal warfare every single day. I mean, you know, we're willing to kill each other for a pair of Nikes, for God's sakes. Yeah. So you know, we're the ones who should be. That's why the aliens don't stick around that long. If they land and they get spotted, they get back in their ship and they take off. Yeah. You know. Because they've had firefights in Cambodia during the, the Vietnam War. There's one case in particular where a ship landed and the platoon came upon the ship and uh, there was a firefight that ensued. And, and the same thing happened in the States in some of these crash retrieval sites where people on both sides actually died. Oh, that's so, the first I've heard of this. I didn't realize that. Well, Leonard Stringfield's uh, status reports, he, 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 passed a, he passed away of colon cancer in 1994. But he was the leading authority on all these crash retrievals. And I have all his, his manuals, all his reports. And there were firefights in the States. I think it was in Ohio, 1973. Military, 11 military personnel died, and some of the aliens died. There was like a firefight that ensued. And it's just the military, they're that hard up to get like the technical hardware. And they'll do anything to get it. And the aliens are just simply trying to defend themselves in whatever means they can use. Michelle, do you think the Canadian government is aware of what's going on, or would they even be included in those discussions with the aliens? I don't think we're as aware as we should be. Um, the states are, for some reason, the, the states are in the forefront of all this. Uh, in 1954, Eisenhower even went to Edwards Air Force Base. The story was that he, he had a dental appointment. But the fact of the matter was that he actually met up with some, some creatures there that actually had landed there. But it was also, in 1964, there was also a landing at Almond Air Force Base in New Mexico, and there was also contact made there with high officials. So, uh, our Canadians, I don't even know if we had any landings of that type that took place where military officials of the highest rank would actually show up and have communications with these creatures. Michelle, uh, it's kind of an off-the-wall question, but we've just finished up just recently with the final shuttle um, launch and landing. Um, has there been any sightings that have taken place from the International Space Station that you're aware of, or perhaps even the shuttle? Oh, yeah. Oh, there I, is. Oh, I've actually videotaped... Uh, I was videotaping the what was that? Not the STS-48. That I've got a little clip of the STS-48, as a matter of fact, on my website, and that's cool. That's where the UFO takes off and does a 145-degree right-angle turn and disappears in space. But there's one, there's one clip. I actually was videotaping at the time that they went up to fix the optical lens on the Hubble Space Telescope, and during the repairs. There was a UFO that flies right behind, like way, way in the distance, but behind the astronauts as they're working on replacing the lens. And what's what astonished me is that nobody made a commentary, even the person looking from ground control, looking at the guys repairing the Hubble, didn't even notice the object that went from one end of the screen to the other end of the screen. And I says, shit, they're there all the time. 
And then there's other footage too, where the the the, the, tether, the tethered telescope or uh, tethered satellite they had, where the tether actually broke, and then all of a sudden there's this swarm of objects, and the camera is not looking at particles that are flying in front of the camera. They'd be practically invisible because they're so close to the lens. The lens was set at infinity, so that means it's shooting something way out there. And even then, they're not even close enough to say how big these objects were. But these were UFOs that were almost like swarming around the uh, that satellite. And so they've got the footage. They've got the evidence. And like just like the gun camera films of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where jets were chasing UFOs. And I'm sure they got really good footage. But that footage has never been released. That's so there's archival stuff there uh, just waiting to be exposed, I suspect. Michelle, we're going to have to start to wrap up, but I want to ask you, somebody's driving along the 401, they're driving along the Trans-Canada, they spot something out of the normal, let's just call it that, in the sky. Can they contact you? Well, they can contact me, but they can contact me after they've taken lengthy bit of time. See, I, I, I like I told you before, I created a page it tells you how to identify or distinguish a UFO from a man-made object in 30 minutes or less. But it may take more than 30 minutes to accurately describe or at least make sure to your, down to your own self that what you're looking at is something unknown and not a plane that's simply flying by. If you're looking at, it, at an object for two seconds and you're assuming it's a UFO, that's wrong. You have to be there if you're able to pull off the road and then look at it for half an hour, an hour, two hours. That's how long UFOs sometimes will stick stick around. Then you can make a more accurate observation and say, okay, this is not a two-second sighting, you know, of a plane or a shooting star. This is something weird because it's hovering there or it's doing loop to loops, zigzagging, or taking off back into space. Then they can call me after that because. Folks, I'll put his contact information on the www.nightfrightshow.com website. One of the sad things about speaking with Michelle is we never have enough time. (laughs) We have to end it. And I'm looking at the clock now as it's ticking down, Um, which only leads to one thing, Michelle. You're going to have to come back. You're a regular. You were the first guest on this show. Um, You were the last guest on the show when I left Sudbury. And now you're back again when we're broadcasting right now at a Kingston. And I thank you so much for your time. www.nightfrightshow.com, folks. We've been speaking with Michelle Deschamps, none better. For Canadian sightings, none better than Michelle Deschamps. He is the Northern Ontario MUFON director, Mutual UFO Network. Easy way to get his coordinates, folks. www.nightfrightshow.com. If you have a sighting, just click on his website. And as he said, there's how to identify a UFO in 30 minutes or less. It's phenomenal. His website is phenomenal. It's full of pictures of Canadian sightings, articles, etc., etc. He knows his stuff inside out. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time. Night Fright, and your host, Brent Holland. The time is now. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. (laughs) 